Hey everybody, I'm Dylan and this is the Scripture Chronicles podcast. Welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. Joining me today, as always, is the lovely Corey Howitz. Corey, how are you doing? Doing good. I am glad to hear it. Guys, as is the custom, we're going to go ahead and give a brief recap of last week's episode, and then we're going to jump into this one. So we have actually now started Exodus. And so all of these episodes are going to be building on one another. As a matter of fact, they're not only going to be building on the previous Exodus episodes, but they're also going to be building on the previous Genesis episodes. So if you get a free moment and want to go through all of the podcasts that you haven't gone through, I would recommend that considering the fact that they do build on each other. At the very least, however, I would recommend listening to last week's Exodus episode before this one, and that'll give you the context at least for our discussion today. So last week we went through chapters one through four. We got a little ambitious thinking we could get through one through six. Didn't happen. So this week we're going to go ahead and jump into chapter five and try to make it all the way through the plagues in chapter 12a, the beginning of chapter 12 there. Uh, But before we do that, let's go ahead and give our brief recap of last week's episodes. Last week, one through four. Corey, what the heck happened? So long ago now, it's hard to remember. But Good thing we took notes, and in our notes, we uh, started off Exodus realizing that Exodus began off sounding a lot like Genesis 1 in a good way. Man and woman were told to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1, and Exodus 1, the people of Israel were doing fruitful and multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong. But now that Joseph is out of the picture, there's a new king of Egypt who did not know Joseph, did not like the Israelites. And so he dealt really shrewdly with them, set them to forced labor. And he even uh, starts killing the male Hebrews that are born. And out of this harsh um, persecution of the Israelites is when Moses is born. And Moses was sent in an ark, sent down the Nile River and picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. A quick jump in the story. Many years pass by. Moses ends up killing a Egyptian slave driver, is hurting one of his fellow Hebrews. Moses has to split, goes off to Midian. He finds his wife at a well, like many of his forefathers. And while he's off in this land of Midian, um, he's shepherding some sheep on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. We learned that those are the same place with different names. And on this mountain, God appears to Moses and God gives Moses his personal name, Yahweh, I am. And so the I am um, is trying to convince Moses to do his bidding which is to free all of his people from slavery in Egypt. But Moses wasn't wanting to. He saw God's character being slow to anger. Or if you kept up with last week's episode, the Hebrew said that God has long nostrils, right? And eventually, through all of Moses' disobedience and not wanting to listen to God, God's nose grew hot. And so... uh, God's nose grew hot against Moses, but eventually he says, Moses, you're going to go and Aaron's going to help you. And right after 
God chose Moses. Moses was going to go through and do God's work. God was ready to kill him. What sounded like later that night because Moses did not circumcise his sons. And so his wife Zipporah circumcises sons and touches the blood of the foreskin on Moses' feet, um, which is really odd and weird that she would call him his bridegroom of blood. Um, but we took away from that was God did not choose Moses because he was this great upstanding guy, just like every other character we've seen God choose so far. Um, but he chose to choose Moses, but Moses was expendable if he was not really going to listen to God, even though he already wasn't listening a lot and had little faith. Um, the breaking of God's covenant of circumcision was not something he was willing to let pass by, but his wife circumcised his sons for him. And so now Moses is good to go. His sons are circumcised. He met Aaron and now... It's time to go with Aaron and face Pharaoh. All right. So we finally get to the crux of the story so far. Moses before Pharaoh. Like Corey had just said, Moses has been demonstrated to be expendable, meaning that it's not because of Moses that God is utilizing Moses. Instead, God is choosing to utilize Moses for his good pleasure. However, the purpose behind God's utilization of Moses is to free the Israelites from the Egyptians. So like Corey said last week, we touched on the fact that a new king had arisen who didn't know Joseph. Remember, Joseph was elevated to second in command over all of Egypt at one point in time. He brings all of his family into Egypt. They're fruitful and they multiply in Egypt and they become this great nation. The Egyptians fear because of them, because of how great they are, and decide to enslave them, and they decide to make them work. So that's going to be a big deal coming up here in chapter five. So let's go ahead and jump into chapter five and see what's happening. So Moses confronts the elders of Israel and says, hey, God met with me, and he said he's going to rescue you. So now I'm going to go before Pharaoh. So Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, just as it was foretold. God said, this is what you should say to Pharaoh. But we already know what's coming based on what God said previously. Pharaoh's not going to do it. Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? That's going to be really important. Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you should no longer give the people straw to make their bricks. Instead, let them gather straw for themselves. So what we have going on is Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh for the first time and say, hey, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. Just as God foretold previously at the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, absolutely not. That's not going to be in the cards at all. Instead, you know what? How about you make the work harder? And so this idea between rest and work is one we've already actually been 
acquainted with in Genesis. So we saw at the very beginning of Genesis during the beginning days of creation account in Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, this idea of rest and work. So God in Genesis is shown to be working in a sense while he creates the world. Once he completes everything, his creation in the seventh day, it says that he rests from his work. And so this idea between rest and work is going to be one that's being consistent throughout the scriptures all the way through the New Testament into the times of Christ, where eventually Christ is going to be the one who the author of Hebrews says gives people rest. Well, here we are actually expecting, in a sense, some form of rest. So it's thought that Moses is going to actually take the people and deliver them from their work. Whereas Pharaoh, being the counter to that, says, make them work harder. So now we have this predicament. Pharaoh has been confronted and he actually increased the burdens of Israel. How do you think Israel is going to respond to that? You know, they were getting along just fine with their straw making their bricks. Now they can't have it. So obviously the people being unhappy about this confront Moses. The people then go back to Moses and said, hey, why have you done this? Why have you confronted Pharaoh? You could have let us be. We could have been fine. And so Moses being a bit distraught in verse 22 says to the Lord, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Famous last words. Well, we already know, based on the beginning of Exodus, that God intends to deliver his people, but not without a fight. And the reason behind this fight, if you will, is the fact that God is going to show his power to Egypt. God knew that Pharaoh wouldn't give up easily, and he never intended for Pharaoh to give up easily. As a matter of fact, God is going to be the one hardening Pharaoh's heart in order that God's power may be displayed in Egypt. So because of that, jumping in then to chapter six, we're going to be uh, moving right along and talking about Moses once again confronting Pharaoh. But before we do that, we have a couple interesting asides in chapter six. So first off, God speaks to Moses and says to him, I am Yahweh, just as he said at the burning bush on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Same place. It says, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. We talked a little bit about this last week. It's a really interesting thought that God actually did not reveal himself as Yahweh to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob. Instead, he reveals himself most often as God Almighty. But he doesn't reveal himself as Yahweh, as he did to his people here. So he established his covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. So we talked extensively about that in Genesis. And that is the land in which they, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they lived as sojourners, but the land in which the people of Israel are to inherit, the place in which they are to allegedly acquire rest. Moreover, God says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession for I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. 
but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirits and harsh slavery. So God says, because of the covenant that I have made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart, not simply for the sake of hardening Pharaoh's heart. And don't be disheartened because of this. Instead, I'm going to use this as a teaching opportunity to show Egypt that I am God. And also so that you, Israel, will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt. When you go out of this, you're going to know that I am God. One other thought, going back to the idea that God did not reveal himself as Yahweh to characters in Genesis. Yet, we also talked about in Genesis, the name Yahweh is used 165 times in the book of Genesis. And so um, just a almost like a little behind the scenes picture here is we, we get this idea that um, the person writing Genesis, who we take to be Moses, Moses writing Genesis through Deuteronomy, um, Moses is writing to people um, who've heard the story, who are aware of the name Yahweh. And so we have Yahweh being used as early, I think as chapter two in Genesis. And so chapter two of Genesis is written after the burning bush incident with Moses, right? Because Moses doesn't write these books until later on. And so that's just a little something to, to keep in mind that although, and Dylan briefly mentioned this, Although Yahweh was used a lot already, God did not reveal himself as Yahweh. And that's really important that um, he's now revealing himself to Moses for the first time by this personal name. And in this personal name, Yahweh is saying, there is power. And to take note of that, this is very personal. So there's power in this name, and it's a very personal name name. God does this because he is loving, right? And so um, that's it for that section. But we, we left off in this section with the people really disheartened. The people um, have their work ramped up by Pharaoh because Pharaoh thinks they're lazy and are not working hard enough, which is, you know, the opposite of what God's intention was in creation, right? You remember six days he works, the seventh day he rested, and he made this day of rest for his people. And not just for his people, but he made it for all people. But you can see already a lot of people are losing sight of that. The Hebrew word for Egyptian, Mitzrayim, actually means the oppressor. So the oppressor, Egypt, which is a land, but also kind of a character, I was brought up back in Genesis 10. Um, they've really gotten very far from God's ideal. So we're going to have a lot more decreation as we get further into the story. And we're just getting farther from God's ideal. We're getting further and further away from God's presence, from the Garden of Eden, if you will. And so as the people are at this really low point and bruised and bent and lost in heart and faith in God, we have this break at the end of chapter six, right? And so God assures Moses, don't worry, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring you out of the land of Egypt. And then we have a genealogy. And the genealogy, it starts from Reuben, and it says some of his sons. And then it goes to Simeon, and it has some of his sons. And then it gets to Levi. So 
just as you think like, oh, it's going to go through all 12 sons of Jacob. Once it gets to Levi, it just stays with Levi. And the important thing to get out of here in Levi is that out of this genealogy of Levi, we're focusing in on Kohath. And Kohath has a son, Amram. And Amram has a couple sons named Moses and Aaron. And we, we talked about last week that we're taking a break from finding the guy to save the people. And we know that because we learned that Moses was a Levite. We know that the deliverer for the big conflict of scripture is going to be from Judah. And so we learned that Moses and Aaron come from the line of Levi. And that's, these are the guys who are our protagonists of the story today. And in Amram, the father of Moses and Aaron, it gives a little aside that he married his father's sister, which we'll learn in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 12, that that's not kosher in God's Torah. So it's little hints are kind of dropped all over that you would pick up later like that. Why would he even include that Amram married Jochebed, his father's sister? Oh, we find that later on that that's not part of God's ideal. Again, so we have the genealogy mainly focusing on the Levites. And at the end of the book and into the next book, the clan of Levi is going to be really important. And these different sons of Levi are going to have different um, responsibilities with the tabernacle. Um, and Aaron's sons are going to have the main duty of serving within the tabernacle. So we had Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh at one point already. And so at that point, when they did go before Pharaoh, Pharaoh basically lopped them off and said, hey, increase the labor of all of the Israelites so that they actually have to work more. And Israel didn't like that. They grumbled. They were upset by this fact. And so Moses also being distraught went before God and said, hey, God, what the heck? And God says, hey, I'm God. I'm going to show you that. I'm going to show Egypt that. And so now we have basically the culmination of that statement, starting in chapter 7, as Moses and Aaron go back before Pharaoh. God says to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. So that's not to say he's literally God or anything like that. It's a metaphor basically saying that you will be like God to Pharaoh, similar to God. And Aaron is going to essentially take on the role of prophet. God says, Pharaoh will harden his heart. So we already knew that. And now once again, it's restated that Pharaoh is in fact going to not let the people go. He is going to be stubborn about this. He's going to harden his heart. But God knows this, and God actually is part of this and does it for a reason. And it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So basically, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff. It's going to be crazy, but I'm going to actually harden Pharaoh's heart so that they will know that I'm God. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. There's the key word. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. He cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, they also did the same thing with their secret arts. So for each man cast down his staff, they both became serpents. However, the staff of Aaron swallows up the staff of the magicians. Yet, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So we get the first sign, the staff being thrown and becoming a serpent. And we see, interestingly, the magicians being able to replicate the fact that the staff was thrown down and, and became a serpent. They were able to do something similar. Nevertheless, we see that the staff that Moses and Aaron had thrown down actually gobbles their staff up. Kind of an interesting little tale leading into the first plague. The water turned blood. But again, we're just seeing what this hardening of Pharaoh's heart looks like. And just to touch on that idea a little bit, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, people have a really tough time with that. But God, one, as Roman 9 says, God could do as he pleases. But two, this is not a guy who's trying to follow God and God's like, you know what, I'm just going to mess with him and change his heart. This is a guy who's already killing all baby boys of the Israelites, already putting people to hard labor and is very against God and his ideals. So God is just punishing him and kind of giving him over to his sins. Also, uh, this idea is summed up in Romans pretty well. In God's wrath here on earth, part of his uh, punishment is just giving people over to their wickedness, right? So God just saying, all right, Pharaoh, I'll let you continue to have this hard heart. I'll let you continue to do these bad things, but it'll be to your destruction, right? And so that's just a little quick aside on the hardening of hearts. I just deal with a lot of youth and they come up to me kind of worried it's like but how do i know like will my heart be hardened no if you're worried about god and loving him it's a good sign that your heart is not hardened and so pharaoh in his wickedness is doubting god and god just giving him over to his doubts of himself of god and so with that hardness of heart and Pharaoh not taking heed to this small sign, then God gives a big sign. And so God says to Moses, since Pharaoh's heart is hardened, I want you to go stand on the bank of the Nile and take up your staff in your right hand. And then I want you to go and smack the waters with it. And as you come down and smack the waters with it, I will turn all the waters to blood and the fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Well, that's verse 18 in chapter 7. Moses just then relays it to Aaron. All right, Aaron, this is what God said to me. Now go and do it. As this plague happens, the enchanters were also able to do it. So just as Pharaoh's magicians were able to make their staffs into serpents, Pharaoh's enchanters are able to turn small bits of water into blood. And so Pharaoh is unchanged, not very impressed. We go into the next plague. Yahweh again says, all right, stretch out your hand. And there will be a bunch of frogs that come over the lands. 
And so in this plague, Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the same thing by their secret arts. But Pharaoh, this time, even though his magicians are able to do the same thing, he pleads with Moses in verse 8 of chapter 8. It says, take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so just as it seems like Pharaoh broke that easily at the end of Moses praying for Pharaoh in the land of Egypt and the frogs dying, just left to be cleaned up, Pharaoh hardened his heart once he saw that everything was back to normal. Right, so we have two plagues. Both times, Pharaoh has magicians able to do the same thing. Each time, Pharaoh hardens his heart, even though the second plague, it looks promising. Like, Pharaoh might just let the people go and make the sacrifice. But again, it's not enough that he just lets the people go and sacrifice. God wants to break Pharaoh to let his people go permanently. It's like Corey pointed out, uh, with both of those two plagues, the magicians are able to replicate them. Another interesting fact, again, following the trend with the staff turning into the serpent. And so uh, it is really interesting, at least to me, that the magicians are even able to replicate those three things. That seems a bit odd. Nevertheless, we are going to uh, continue the story and see that even the magicians are not able to replicate these plagues forever. So when we get to the third plague, then the Ganats, you have to pronounce the G, that's Ganat. The Lord says to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff. Once again, strike the dust. I picture this as an anime scene where Aaron has, you know, this huge larger than life staff and jumps 30 feet into the air, slams it down onto the ground. And then all the dust throughout all the lands of Egypt just flies up into the air and poof, becomes gnats. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but nevertheless, that's how I read it. Aaron stretches out his staff and the dust becomes gnats or, or gnats. I've heard it both ways. Anyway, the interesting bit about he, uh, about the gnats, however, is that in verse 18, the magicians tried their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on everything, on all the people, all the beasts. There was gnats. And so this is the first time that the magicians were not actually able to replicate the plague. Uh, and they say, because of that, this is the finger of God. But still yet, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that is just what the Lord had said. The Lord had said that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And still yet, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, even in spite of the gnats. The Lord of the flies sends the flies, right? You got to read the book if you don't. Get it. It's a book if you don't get that reference. Yahweh sends flies onto the land of Egypt. Uh, but before he sends the flies onto the land of Egypt, he lets Moses know that I'm going to set apart the land of Goshen. And that is the land that is set apart for Israel. So now we start to see a distinction. So Dylan kind of alluded to this last plague and the plague of the gnats, that gnats were on everything. But now the flies are not going to be on the people of Israel who are in the land of Goshen. And after this, Pharaoh says, all right, go sacrifice to your God, but stay within the land. And Moses says, no, that's not obedient to God. We have to go to the mountain. 
right? And so Pharaoh hardens his heart again. So we see a little budge again, kind of like the second plague, but he only wants them to sacrifice within Goshen, within the land of Egypt. And that is a no-go for God. The next plague, plague five in chapter nine, is the livestock. And again, in this fifth plague, God makes a distinction between Egyptian and Israel cattle. Right? And so if Pharaoh refuses, it says, Behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Right, So it's just a very severe plague that's going to happen to the flocks. And Pharaoh's hardened. He wouldn't let the people go. And that's that. But again, nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel died. They were all okay. And this is going to be pretty normal for the rest of the plagues that um, the land of Israel will be all good. Uh, we'll keep running through the plagues real quickly here. The next plague being the sixth one in chapter nine, the plague of boils. So uh, in the plague of boils, Moses is commanded to grab some soot from the furnace before Pharaoh and toss it into the air. It's going to become a fine mist and then it's going to land on everybody and it's going to infect them with boils. But yet again, we're going to see that Egypt and Israel are distinct. We see that ultimately Egypt is the one facing these plagues, whereas God's people Israel is spared from them. And that is going to be very important. It already is important, but it's going to be incredibly important as we move through these plagues. Moving on then to the seventh one, we see a plague of hail. So Yahweh says to stretch out your hand to heaven, and he actually offers a warning to the Egyptians, basically saying, tell everybody that if they have a servant or if they have livestock out in the field, grab them, take them in, put them inside because it's going to hail and it's going to kill everything. And so those people who actually were fearing God at this point do that. However, there's many who the text says don't fear God and they leave their cattle and they leave their servants out in the fields and sure and lo and behold, it hails and everything that is out in the field gets wiped out at this point. But again, verse 26, it says, no hail in Goshen. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. As is the custom for the plagues up until this point, Pharaoh calls Moses in and says, pray for me. But yet again, Pharaoh sins and hardens his heart once Moses prays and the plague goes away. So we're not done yet. Going on into plague number eight. Number eight is the locusts. Moses says, let us go or there will be locusts. Pharaoh's response is, okay, that sounds pretty gnarly. How about you go, but not let your little ones go, right? Because if he takes everybody, then they might just make a break for it. So he doesn't really trust them. Or maybe he's just cruel for no reason. I mean, either way is definitely possible. But Moses says, no. Every single one of us must go out. They don't strike a deal. Yahweh says, stretch out your hand over Egypt. And as he stretched out his hand over Egypt, the locusts come. So what fields and crops weren't destroyed yet by different plagues so far, especially by the hail, was eaten up by the locusts. And Pharaoh says, please forgive my sin. Pray for me. 
And then to make the locust go away, Yahweh provides a west wind and hardened Pharaoh's heart. So a lot of times in punishment, God will provide a scorching east wind. For example, like in the book of Jonah, God provides a scorching east wind to make Jonah's sulking to the east of the city very bitter and hard and brutal. But here he provides a west wind as a sort of salvation from the locusts. All right, moving on to the ninth and then finally the tenth plague here. So the ninth plague in chapter 10 is the plague of darkness. So the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt and a darkness that will be felt. It's an intense darkness. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was pitch darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three whole days. They did not see one another. They couldn't see anything. No one even rose from their place uh, for three days. All the people of Israel had light where they lived though. So again, the distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then Pharaoh called Moses and he said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones may go with you. Only let the flocks stay behind. And Moses said, well, that's actually, that's not the deal. As a matter of fact, our little ones have to go. At this point, Pharaoh says, nope, get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. Because if you come before me again, Moses and Aaron, you are going to die. So Moses said in verse 29, as you say, I will never see your face again. And then moving into chapter 11, we have the final plague then being threatened. So the 10th plague. Chapter 11, it says, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you all go. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So all of you guys are going to be let go. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man and every woman, their neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So just as God had already said at the beginning of Exodus, basically, once you all leave, ask everybody for all of their stuff, and they're going to give it to you because you're going to plunder Egypt. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus saith the Lord. So that's Moses saying to Pharaoh that God will come into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all of the land of Egypt, such that there never has been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that they may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. So just as we've been saying throughout our explanation of the plagues so far, there is a very clear distinction between Egypt and Israel, one of the big things that God is doing here is he is setting this up so that Egypt is going to know that God is God, but Egypt is going to know that God is God because they were judged. Israel, on the other hand, is going to know that God is God, but they're going to know that God is God because of this. They're going to be able to tell their children about how the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Moses says this all to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Once again, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. So enter the 10th and final plague in the beginning of 
chapter 12, the death of the firstborn children. So we're only going to briefly cover this today, just make a few brief comments on it. And then next week, we're going to actually cover in a little bit more detail the Passover event as well as the final exodus. Corey, do you have any thoughts on the 10th plague? The 10th plague is so brutal, but yet not nearly as brutal as Pharaoh was to the Israelites, right? We, we might have mentioned this a little bit last week, but remember, to start Exodus, king of Egypt was killing every single boy that was born to the Israelites. And now God is only taking the firstborns of the Egyptians. So it is very just, but yet even merciful. It's not even an eye for an eye, right? It's like an eye for an earlobe. Right? It's still gnarly, it's still painful, but God is even showing his mercy through the plagues. This last plague is the gnarliest, it's the worst, but still not even close to the measure of how heavy Pharaoh's burden was to the Israelites. And so here's the 10 plagues and kind of want to take a few steps back. Maybe we'll get up in a plane and, and fly over and look from the, the big picture point of view and look at some hyperlinks. And so remember, before we really get into these plagues and why these plagues, I want us to go back to uh, the brain space of Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, um, after God blesses Abraham, Abraham goes down to Egypt because of a famine. Now, Joseph, uh, well, I guess Joseph's brothers and Jacob go down to Egypt because of a famine. And while Abraham was down in Egypt because of a famine, he lies to the king of Egypt and says that his wife is just his sister. And so God inflicts plagues on Egypt because of Abraham. And so now we have the Israelites still in Egypt because of a plague that brought Jacob and his sons down there. And Egypt is experiencing plagues on behalf of God's people, Israel. So big hyperlink to Genesis chapter 12. We pointed that out a few times in the past, um, but we're finally here. We're at the plagues of Egypt, the famous plagues at least. And so we look back at chapter 12 and say, oh yeah. We also um, have seen the hyperlink of Israel in slavery to the Egyptians, you know, back in that story of Abraham. Abraham has a slave woman named Hagar. And him and his wife, Sarai, mistreat their slave woman, Hagar, right? And so now the Israelites have it reversed upon them. They are mistreated slaves in the land of Egypt. I'm sure there's a few more hyperlinks. Those are the big ones from the life of Abraham. But now I want us to just look at these plagues, the 10 plagues from the water of the Nile to blood down to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And this asks the question, why? You know, why these plagues? And something that I hear a lot, pretty much most people I talk to, they'll say, well, you know, it's because of the different gods that the Egyptians had. And that's, if you know anything about mine and Dylan's standpoint and view of scripture, um, it doesn't sit well with us because we have a really high view of the author of scripture. We believe that 
the author of scripture being God and the human author there, you know, God somehow by his Holy Spirit is influencing the author to write his truths, right? So a great and beautiful mystery that is, but God and the author are writing this book together and they're painting for us a world. So within the Bible is a narrative world. Um, and in that narrative world is the interpretation keys that we need, right? So nowhere in the Bible do we hear about Egyptian gods. And I'm sure there are many Egyptian gods who line up to these things. But what the Bible has given us so far, and what seems to be a much more likely explanation, is that these plagues are more so a decreation. Right, So the hyperlink would be then back to Genesis 1 and 2. We already saw the hyperlink, I think it was in chapter 5. Yeah, it was chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Um, the hyperlink there was that Pharaoh did not want the Israelites to have any rest, but he wanted to make them work and give them lots of heavy burdens. So that's Genesis chapter 2, right? God wanted the people to rest, but... Pharaoh was undoing God's good desires for his creation. And so now within the plagues, we see God decreating Egypt, right? So he turns their water that's good for all sorts of stuff, for drinking, for bathing in, and for catching fish in. The water goes to blood. All that stops. The fish are dead in it, right? And within the water coming out of the now, you have all these frogs that are overwhelming. Within the air, we have gnats and flies and locusts and hail coming out of the heavens. Um, the first thing that was created was light. The ninth plague is darkness. So we're going to take away that good thing that God first made. The livestock was created on day six. The death of the firstborn. The people who were also made on day six. The boils affect the people. So all these plagues... They may not necessarily correlate one-to-one -one with the six days of creation, but yet God is undoing the good that he created. Because remember, he created all things and he called them good. And now he's saying to Pharaoh in Egypt that, all right, you guys aren't being good, so I'm going to bring upon curses. I'm going to bring upon raw to you. So remember, God created things good, tov, but now he's bringing things that are bad or evil, raw. And so the better explanation, I think, for the 10 plagues God brings upon Egypt is to decreate. And so we need to go no further than the Bible, than the first page of the Bible to have a context for what's happening here. And of course, the stories of like Abraham and Hagar um, and the lying to the king of Egypt back in his day, and Jacob and his sons reporting to Joseph back at the end of Genesis. Um, this is all building on each other, but yet we do not need to go to these history books that try and recreate things and say, well, um, we think this is doing that. And again, what they think might be, um, in this case, the plagues. Oh, we think that these plagues are lining up to Egypt's gods. Now, there's nothing in the text to say that. That's just pure speculation, right? And so if you're going to speculate any way on this divide, go towards Scripture. Because Scripture is not so much a speculation, 
right? It's the word of God. And the word of God tells you how to interpret itself. And so this, this is really important to have a good idea of the purpose of history, right? So there's great historians and archaeologists who do a great deal of work, and that's good work that they are doing. But the purpose of those histories, of those people who study the events, it's not for the meaning of Scripture, because within Scripture, we are given the meaning. But the great purpose of those studying of history, of the events, right, so studying things outside of Scripture, the purpose of that would be for, say, apologetics, right? So, oh, let's look back on, you know, these old ruins and we can have proof that there was a global flood. Or look, at there is proof that there was plagues in Egypt. So that doesn't give us more meaning to the text, but instead it gives us more grounds for apologetics. Say, hey, you don't believe this? Well, look at this historical document. Look at what these archaeologists have found. So it doesn't change the meaning of the Bible and gives no extra meaning on the Bible. If we're looking at other things to get meaning for the Bible, it's oftentimes going to take us away from God's intended meaning. So the only good that we're looking to history and historians for is for the sake of apologetics. They should not move us in our grounds of meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Corey summed that up pretty well. I actually had a whole spiel planned myself on that, but Corey's spiel uh, was pretty spot on in every regard. Uh, so I won't go too deep into that idea. I do want to throw my voice in the ring just a little bit, just because this is such a fascinating topic to me. I actually have a, an entire blog post on our website posted on this very topic. Uh, if you want to check that out and see a little bit more about kind of how that works out a little deeper. That being said, if you throw on your philosopher's cap real quickly, uh, just for the sake of argumentation, basically, we believe that the authors have created for us in scripture, as Corey said, a narrative world. So philosophers like to talk about different worlds all the time. It's a great way to think about different thought experiments and things like this. So in the scriptures, we have a world that is created for us. And the authors, as Corey has already pointed out, give us everything we need to interpret that world. It gives us all of the context we need for that world. It gives us all of the culture we need for that world. We can look at the scriptures without having to look back at history and gain all the meaning that was ever intended by using nothing but the scriptures alone. We do not have to go outside of the scriptures in order to understand the meaning in the scriptures or to understand the narrative world that is pulled over our eyes by the text, just like Corey already said. That being said, you can think of the world of history as a separate world. You can also think of them as two books. The Bible is a book and the world of history is a book. There are two worlds or two books, either one. Both metaphors work. So if they are two different worlds, the world of history and the world of the Bible, the Bible is based on the world of history. It's related to the world of history, but it is distinct from the world of history. There's things in the Bible that, not to say that they're not true events, they absolutely are true events, meaning that they actually occurred in space-time history. But the authors utilize the text, not simply to state, here's what happened, A, B, and then C, but instead to create for us 
a narrative that we can understand how A and B relate, how C relates to A and B, and why, what the intention or the purpose or the meaning is. If you just look at the history books, the history books aren't there to give you meaning. They're just there to tell you A happened, B happened, and C happened. But the Bible gives you A, B, and C and tells you why they're important and why they should relate to you. So that's the key distinction between the two. History doesn't give you the meaning. The scriptures give you the meaning. History, as Corey said, can be utilized for apologetics. It can be sometimes helpful for thinking of a concept in one way or another, but it doesn't help with the meaning. The Bible gives you everything you need to know to understand the meaning. It gives you the narrative world that you need to understand. I'll go ahead and get off my soapbox there, uh, just not to not take too much time on this particular topic, although it is kind of the fundamental premise of the podcast itself. We believe that these scriptures are a unified narrative, that they create for us a narrative world that contains inherent meaning. That's something that's actually countercultural right now in our kind of postmodern context. A lot of people say that there is no inherent meaning in texts. As a matter of fact, you might hear it said, not even on a college campus, but in, in lay people speak, you know, in, in your common day-to-day lives, you probably have heard someone say, well, interpretation is relative. Why is your interpretation any more right than my interpretation? And that all stems from this idea that there isn't an inherent meaning where the fundamental premise of this podcast is that there is inherent meaning in the text. It comes from the author or authors and that it can be ascertained It's stable, it's fixed, it can be known by everyone of all times, of all places, and it doesn't require any special knowledge outside of the text to get to it. So that's the fundamental premise of this podcast. So we wanted to take a few minutes to kind of hammer that down since we haven't really touched on that in the podcast itself since Genesis 1 or 2. We'll go ahead and stop with that discussion there. We've covered now the 10 plagues. We've gone through the beginning portions of chapter 12. Like I said at the beginning, we're going to go ahead and touch on the big bulk and meat of chapter 12 and on next week. So this week, we're just going over kind of a brief overview of the plagues um, and then kind of their intended meaning. Corey gave a great explanation of what we believe to be uh, the major meaning of the plagues themselves and how they relate. First and foremost, it's to cast judgment on Egypt. And it's to act as a sign for Israel that God has done this on their behalf. And then as the hyperlinks work out, it looks to be as though the beginning of Exodus is utilizing Genesis 1 creation language. And then this is just as we said in the the tale of Noah, this is a decreation of a lot of the good that God has created. God created things good. And now God is creating bad things or bringing about bad things as kind of an act of decreation to judge Egypt. Cordy did a great job of explaining that. I'll leave that there. Uh, We're going to go ahead and wrap up. Uh, That is all the time we have for today. Before I wrap things up here, I want to make sure Corey got to say everything that he wanted to. Corey, anything else from you? I said everything I wanted, but like the end of last week, there's still more that we want to say on the name of Yahweh, I am. And don't worry, we're going to get to that in two more episodes, I think. Maybe three. But when we get into the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, we will talk about the name of Yahweh more and why it's not being used today. And I'm going to keep making that my last word until we go over it because I'm really excited for it. But yeah, great show today. I'm stoked of what we got to go through. Awesome, guys. Well. Thank you for tuning into the show. 
I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. I hope you have been enjoying the podcast as a whole up until this point. Again, if you haven't had the chance to listen to every episode, I would recommend that as you go through and as you have time that you would do that uh, and get the major context. But we thank you guys for listening and getting as much out of this as you can. If you're blessed by the show, please go on to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, anything like that. Leave a review. Reviews help the visibility of the show. It helps it get into more people's hands. If you find the show helpful, it's completely free to you. It's really easy. Apple Podcasts, iTunes. Uh, leaving a review on there, it does help it just show up in other people's recommended feeds. If you don't want to rely on the algorithm and chance, you can tell people about it. You can share it on Facebook. You can call your friends and say, yo, there's this fantastic podcast that I love so much. It's called The Scripture Chronicles. Check them out. Uh, you can tell them about the website. The website is thebibleisastory.com. Say, hey, they even have a website. It's called thebibleisastory.com. It says the premise of the podcast in the website name. How about that? Isn't that crazy? So you can tell them that. You could also tell them that Dylan and Corey are lonely and that they love the chat. And even if they don't want to listen to the podcast, if they just want to have a conversation, they can do that by emailing us at scripturechronicles at gmail.com. You can too, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's free as well. Crazy. Free stuff. If, however, you do have a little bit of money that you wouldn't mind uh, throwing at the podcast to keep it up and running, it is paid for completely out of pocket. You can do that as well. Scripture Chronicles website, thebibleisastory.com is the place to do that. Again, that's thebibleisastory.com and clicking on donate. Uh, that'll take you to the Patreon page where you can donate towards the show. Thank you guys for all those who do donate towards the show. Also, lastly, if you want real-time information, Facebook page, is probably the best place for that. I think that's all I have to say on that. That's my whole spiel. Thank you guys for listening to all that. If you did, Corey always misses it. So I'm going to count down from three on one. Shalom, Harius. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Shalom, Harius, guys. Thought that was the one. Sorry. <laughs>